So our text uh, tonight is going to be in Psalm 81, verses 1 through 16. And um, uh, so, uh, uh, and I was just, I was thinking about this, you know, it's, this is my, uh, let's see, was it my, uh, we're wrapping up year 11 in November at the, at, here at the church, and we're on Psalm 81, so I figure another 10 years. And we'll finish this series. So, okay, so, so, so let's, so just hang in there with me. We'll get there. So, so I mean, just wait till we get to Psalm 119. All right, that's gonna be a couple years just by alone, you know. So, um, all right, but we are gonna be looking at Psalm 81. We're gonna look at the whole Psalm, 16 verses, and you can find it in the uh, on the bottom right hand corner of page 491 in the Pew Bible. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I was satisfied. All and 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 that is the reading of God's holy word, and so when and so this this psalm is indeed a call to worship, and it raises the question though: When should we worship God? Because the the psalm begins in a way that we may expect a psalm to begin with this joyful, wondrous call to worship, but very quickly we discover in the psalm that not all is right. In Israel, not all is right in the Old Testament church. Uh, they have disobeyed God and turned away uh, from God, and God has disciplined his people. And so the psalm is not uh, a call to the righteous to worship, the suffering righteous even, but a call to the rebellious to repent and return to their God because he is willing to receive them. But in that way, it's also a call to the rebellious and the disobedient to repent that they may come to worship God. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe that's someone you know. 
This is a psalm addressed not necessarily to rank unbelievers who have never darkened the doors of the assembly of God's people, but to those who have taken the name of the Lord upon their lips, but have since turned their back on him, turned their back on his ways. Now, this psalm, in, in this way, refuses to be categorized as simply a, a psalm of grace to the repentant, as if it was some, you know, the, the story of the prodigal just set to song. Uh, there, there is that aspect of that prodigal, that inviting the prodigal to return. But there is also in it a revelation of God's heart, that, that which he longs for, which is that his people would listen to him. And obey his commands. Tonight we consider this call to the rebellious to repent and worship by first looking at this initial call to worship. And then look at the two reasons the psalmist supplies why we worship God. Which is that we worship God because of what he has done for us. And secondly, because he is willing to forgive us still. But first we begin in verses 1 through 4 with this call to worship that is issued out. And we notice here uh, through this repetition of verbs in these verses that we worship with our voices. Uh, This sing aloud, shout for joy, raise a song. We see that this is accompanied by instruments, but the primary mode of praise is the human voice. Now, to sing with our voice is not merely to, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, put forth a physical auditory response, but rather it is the idea that out of the mouths our hearts would sing, would proclaim praise. It is a deeply personal activity uh, to sing. Uh, There was a there was a folk singer just recently that kind of caught fire on the internet. Um, and uh, um, and so just singing, and it was basically kind of an old folk folk country lament. Some of you may have caught this, but but it, the lyrics weren't complicated. Um, but what people kept saying was, he's so sincere. You can see the pain in his voice. You can see them. You can hear the emotion coming through. And to, and and because it wasn't just, and they were comparing it to a lot of the kind of sanitized kind of pop music that comes out where you have very talented musicians that are singing uh, in very uh, really soulless ways, uh, songs that they know are just produced to get the downloads. Um, but it's a deeply personal activity to sing. And so we take to ourselves in our praise and our singing uh, to, to sing to express something artistically in accordance with a meter or tune that, that it strengthens our ability to share our praise with others who want to sing with us. Matthew Henry uh, spoke about this on his, or wrote about this in his commentary. He said, singing aloud and making a noise intimate that we must be warm and affectionate in praising God, that we must with a hearty goodwill show forth his praise as those that are not ashamed to own our dependence and our obligations to him, and that we should join Uh, Many together in this work, the more the better, for it is more like heaven. You know, does does this mean that uh, singing in church can never be half-hearted or cold? Of course not. All right, we've all experienced that. I've shared before, you know, that even to my own shame, coming as a pastor, I've come to worship and sometimes my heart feels like a stone. It feels like hard, you know, rock. 
But I will tell you that as we read the word of God, when you hear the voices of the saints joining together in song, along with the internal pleadings of my own heart, uh, and, and you join that with the groanings of the spirit, soon my heart warms and softens and is revived. And that coldness doesn't last for very long. And so let's remind ourselves that, uh, that when we sing, uh, that, that when we sing, we sing from the heart, but also, as the psalmist says, we sing together to God, who is our strength, the psalmist says. Now, the word technically, uh, literally means refuge. The God does not just give us our strength. He doesn't just give us refuge. That God is himself our refuge and our strength. There's no limit no end to the refuge of the strength then he would supply us. He is the God of Jacob, the same God who gave Jacob his limp as he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. But, he's, he, but he is the same God who gave him his limp to teach Jacob to lean upon the Lord and protect Jacob all his life, even when Jacob needed to be protected from himself. Here is the God we are called to worship together. And we find that the psalmist also notes here that we worship according to his command. The worship is according, it occurs according to the timing that he has given in verse 3, indicating uh, here that there's a start of a new month at the new moon or a special feast like the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles. Scholarly opinions are divided upon exactly what, uh, um, uh, what uh, it's referring to here, uh, but that's on purpose. The psalmist uh, will generalize because they're making songs for worship for the people of God that are fit for the people of God uh, at all times. And so, uh, but, but the fundamental point here is that we worship God in the way he determines and the way in which he approves of. We do not determine our own worship. By our own ideas. Further in verse 4, we see this call to worship is concrete. There's a, it's a statute, a rule, a, a decree in verse 5 that goes back to the beginning, the founding of the nation itself. You notice all the references to Jacob and Isaac and going back to these times, going back to the Exodus. And, and look, there's no wrong time to worship the Lord. But there are times which are the, you know, the minimal times when we are called to gather together and to worship with the people of God. And so we worship, uh, you know, in, in our hearts. Uh, we worship in, in private worship in our own homes with our, with our families. Uh, we also worship God at the appointed times in the weekly gathering of the assembly of the church. Uh, and so we don't, as Hebrews says, give up meeting together, as many have done. Uh, there has been a marked uh, decline uh, in church attendance since COVID, where a bunch of people, many people, have since decided that church just isn't worth going back to anymore. So, and so the question comes to us is, why do you go to church? Why do you come? Is it because it's entertaining? Is it because you feel affirmed? Is it the programs? Like, what, what is it? Why do you go to church? Or why don't you? Or do you come to church because you are a follower of the way of Christ? You are a Christian, a man or woman of God, 
who is responding in obedience to the call of our Lord to gather together in the corporate worship of your Redeemer and your Maker. And what is it that God desires of you in this worship? An offering, perhaps, at times. But what does he want from you? Well, as we hear in the psalm, God wants you. He wants your heart expressed in song in your voice in the midst of the choir of his people as we give him the praise he is due. And so we, we are called to worship God, and then we come to the first reason the psalmist supplies in verses 5 through 10 about why we worship God, which is we worship God because of what he has done for us. And there are two primary things that he has done for us that the psalmist describes here. Is that first, he has delivered us in verses 5 through 7. The author of the psalm gives a very short history of Israel, recounting the Exodus event, uh, making references to the wilderness wanderings, to Sinai. Uh, and in the Exodus, uh, the people heard something. They did not, they, 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 a voice that they had not heard before. They heard the language of deliverance. Yahweh lifted the burden of slavery from their shoulders, and he took the basket of sorrow from their hands. In their distress, they had called upon the Lord for hundreds of years, and the Lord heard them. He answered and delivered them. There is a glory to be given to the Redeemer. That informs their worship of him. And is that not our story as well? The history of Israel is the history of the church because we are, as the Apostle Paul said, Abraham's seed by faith. Further, we are the inheritors of the promises of the covenant that God made with Abraham. The promises that he has revealed and fulfilled and continues to in Christ. And so there's a general and specific application we can make here. That God indeed worked a general deliverance for the people of Israel, but each individual can share how that deliverance played out for them in those unique ways. You know, so for like, for instance, in the Exodus, you know, there's, you have, let's say, a million Hebrews, okay? They all experience the general deliverance, but each of them could individually tell you how that immediately affected their lives. The individual stories they could share. This is the work that I was tasked to do. This was the nature of my burden. This was the hardship and affliction that I was under. And here is how the Lord and his deliverance delivered me. The same is for the church in Christ. Right? We all share. It's not like we each have an individual gospel. There's only one gospel. But we have one redeemer, we have one gospel, one faith, one baptism, but each of us can share the particular ways in which God relieved the burden from our shoulders. The particular experience that we had as a Christian before the cross when his burden fell off his shoulders and went and fell down. How has God relieved the burden of sin and the guilt of condemnation from you? How did you feel when you realized it? How did that impact how you understood God and others and your relationship with him? 
how might that inform your worship of him? He has delivered us. And secondly, the psalmist tells us that he has revealed himself to us. In verses 8 through 10, the author speaks of the testing of the waters of Meribah, the secret place of thunder. This, these are the places in which that God revealed himself to his people, not only as a redeemer, but as the Holy One who redeems, who redeems the life of his servants and the Holy One who has the right to demand obedience from his people. And so in verses 9 and 10, we have the first commandment there, that there will only be one God in the hearts of his people. And the reason given uh, is, is the same as the reason that was given right before he gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, which he says, he is the Lord, our Redeemer. He is our God, and we belong to him. And so now this is how we live for him. This is how we live in light of the reality that we belong to the Lord. He is our maker. He is our redeemer. And thus he, since we belong to him, he orders our lives by his word. We like to talk about how we order our lives by his word. It's technically the other way around, right? He orders our lives by his word and we walk in submission and obedience to that. His word as a whole, he has given to us for our instruction. His son is the ultimate revelation of divine mercy and justice, righteousness, and obedience. As Jesus said, if we have seen Jesus even with eyes of faith, then we have beheld God the Father. We look to him even, as the psalmist says in verse 10, as helpless babies in our need as we open our mouths. And he feeds us. And there's two things I want to highlight in these verses. That first, God's desire in verse 8. He admonishes his people because he simply wants them to listen to him. But And by listen, he means to hear and to obey. Grace, then, does not nullify the need for obedience. Rather, grace enables our obedience, weak as it is, and makes our obedience acceptable to God. And second, note that the absolutely dependent relationship portrayed of for God's people at the end of verse 10. To be spoon-fed like a baby is the height of helplessness and is downright insulting to an adult. Right? If you say to somebody, I gotta spoon-feed you like a baby, they're not gonna say thank you. Right? They might have some other words for you, but they ain't gonna say thank you. But we are fools if we do not recognize the nature of our relationship and honor God and realize that's, who, that's how we are with him. That's how helpless and needy we are. Indeed, it is such a relationship with him uh, that the primary means of our communication with God is prayer. In prayer, we're not offering anything to God, but our cries, our needs. And so God reveals himself as both the God who delivers and the God who provides. And as those who receive his daily mercies, this ought to impact how we interact with God in our prayers. As I just learned about this guy named Benjamin Bedome, who is a uh, particular Baptist, is a kind of a, like Reformed Baptist and 
uh, Charles Spurgeon was referring to him in his commentary. And um, it's always interesting to see the guys that we refer to and see, who did they quote? You know, <laughs> go find them. Uh, but looked up this guy. He was, a, he was a pastor in the 1740s, wrote over 800 hymns, uh, and uh, relatively unknown. Uh, but he was at the time well known for his hymn writing and his preaching. Uh, but he argued that this picture in verse 10 is a very picture of prayer. And that it teaches us that as believers, we ought to have warmth and fervency in our approach to prayer. That we ought to have a holy, robust fluency with God in our prayers. And that we should also have an enlarged hope and expectation that God will answer our prayers. God has delivered us, revealed himself to us, and so we worship him. Finally, the second reason here that he supplies for us to worship God is that we worship God because he forgives us. And this is, takes us uh, actually not verses 11 through 12, but through 11 through 16. And we see, of course, here that God disciplines his people in verses 11 through 12. But I want you to note here that the, des the desired product of holy discipline from God is worship. That's the fundamental principle when you open up our book of church order, that beautiful blue binder with all its orderly Presbyterian rules, all right? But one of the things it says about church discipline is that one of the, one of the goals of, of church discipline is to reclaim the offender for Christ. We don't want people to be excommunicated. We don't want people to get booted out of the church. We want people to be won back for Christ. It's like what Paul says in his letter. He says, when you have that repentant brother, restore him gently. Bring him back into the fold. And worship here is the product, the desired product, the desired end of holy discipline. God's people did not listen to him. They did not submit to him. The Hebrew basically says they would have none of me. They wouldn't have anything to do with me. They would have none of the Lord or his ways. Now, to, in order to do that, to move to being those who belong to the Lord as his people and then to turn away from him, it means at some point discontentment creeped in. At some point, they became discontent with God. Charles Spurgeon, he, he says on this, that God has hurt us, delivered us, liberated us, but too often our unbelief makes the wretched return of mistrust, murmuring, and rebellion. Great is our sin. Great is the mercy of our God. Let us reflect upon both and pause for a while. And we must ask ourselves, have we become discontent with the Lord, with his provision, with his calling upon our lives? Have we grown weary of obedience, grown weary of doing good, grown weary of seeking the interests of others in love? Are we becoming hard towards one another in the church? Are we turning more inward and suspicious? Let us reflect, as, as Charles Spurgeon exhorts us, and be wary of pride, for when we commit ourselves pridefully to the path of sin, he, the psalmist reveals, the Lord reveals that he may just 
give us what we want. He gave Israel over to their stubborn hearts and to their own counsels. And how often have you heard, I have, how often have you heard Christians justify their disobedience to God because they're being true to themselves? Because they need to follow their hearts. Because they need to heed the counsel of unbelievers and those outside of the faith. And we see this very principle repeated in Romans chapter 1. That God gives people over to the lusts of their hearts as a form of his judgment. You know, it's interesting. It's, it's an odd thing to say, for people to criticize God to say he's a miser and he doesn't give people what they want. He gives everybody what they want. He gives everyone what they desire. He gives us over to the thing that we worship. And so let us be careful in selecting that which we desire and that which we cherish and nurture in our hearts. Let us hear the warning and the encouragement that we become what we worship, either to our ruin or our restoration. We also see here, this wraps up the last part of the psalm in verses 13 and 16, that God longs for our repentance. He reveals his heart here. He has a bit, but he definitely does it right here. God longs for our repentance, but not in like a, a, a needy kind of way. I remember, I remember reading a book once of a, written by a Christian counselor, and it was a very good book. Uh, but the thing that bothered me was the counselor who was writing this kept talking about how God was desperate to blah, 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 desperate. He kept using that word desperate. I'm like, desperate communicates a, a lack of something. And I just, God does not lack anything. There's no desperation or, or patheticness. <laughs> like, or, well, that's not even a word, I don't think. But, but there's no, like, but, but, uh, but there's, there's, it, there's, no, there's no lacking in our God. And so that's not the way in which I mean it in terms of him longing for our repentance as if he needs it. But God desires that his people would listen to him and walk, that is, live our daily lives in his ways. That's what God wants for us. But why? Well, again, it's not as though God benefits from my obedience, like somehow he gets a, some kind of return on his investment. He's certainly glorified by the obedience, but not in, but not in a way in the sense that he was lacking glory before, and now he has the glory that he was lacking. Rather, he longs, and this is the best, thing, the best picture I could come for it, that I could figure, out, figure it out. He longs for our obedience in the same way a parent longs for their child to make wise decisions. Why? Is it for the parent so they can benefit the parent? No. It's so their child can benefit, right? Because that gives the parent joy. That's that kind of dynamic. Matthew Henry wrote, uh, wrote on this. He said, God delights in our serving, not because he is the better for it, but because we shall be. Because we benefit from it. And so repentance here then, this, this, uh, that God desires from his people, is not merely the saying sorry, but it also involves the mending of our ways. Remember, it's a turning, the physical act. It's a metaphor of the turning of one's life, turning of action, changing the mind, but also changing what the hands are doing as well. And so, um, it, and, so, and so God desires for his people to turn from sin unto him. And he indicates in doing so in this psalm that he is always ready to receive his repentant people. 
There is no repentant soul or sinner that God would ever turn away. And some say, how can you say that you're a Presbyterian, right? Because we believe in election and stuff. That. We're like, well, yeah, but you know how God brings people into the, to do that, how the elect come in through repentance. God is not only ready to forgive and receive, but he is ready to provide and to protect. God is ready to bless all who will come to him and receive his goodness. If we would only listen to him, if we would only walk in his ways, in his grace, he says he would subdue our enemies, feed our souls and our bodies, and satisfy our hearts. The idea from honey from the rock, um, Apparently in that region of the world, um, there's rock crevices in there, and bees will tend to make, they can make hives right there in the rock crevices, and so you'll oddly see beads of honey dripping down the rock. And it's a, it's a very strange, strange concept, but that's what it's, that's what it's referring to. But this hard, uh, where you wouldn't expect sweet blessing, God will provide it and bring it. This he does. He does all of this, all together in Christ. Christ who lives in us by his spirit, renewing our hearts, calling us back, even after we have gone astray. You know, I, I think of it every time we do, it's one of our um, confessions of sin. And one of the lines of confession of sin that just cuts me right here is the one, is one that has a line that says, we have sinned against so much mercy. Does anyone remember that line? sinned against so much mercy. God has shown so much mercy to us. And how often we have yet the next day <laughs> or a week later or a month later turned. And yet God is there ready to receive us. Such he is. And such is our Redeemer and our Savior. How grace, gracious and good and wonderful he is. And so there's more we could say. There's more we could say. But we're going to conclude tonight simply by meditating on a word that I just, you can't help but feel when you read this psalm, which is tenderness. Divine tenderness. The tenderness of God towards his people, even when we have sinned greatly against him. And so if you find yourself in that place tonight, weighed down by the world, with your hearts tied down with sin, with cold apathy creeping in that feels as though your, your heart is an immovable rock of stone. It, it reflect upon the call that is even for you to come and to worship God. He has called us to worship him. He calls us to reflect upon his mercy and his revelation, to reflect upon our rebellion and our sin, even against his mercy, and to return to him, to obey him. But most of all, know that God wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants all of you, that he may bless you eternally in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you issue the call to worship even every week to your people, to this people, though we are undeserving. You call us not to even today, not once but twice to worship you. 
The very call to worship is filled with grace. Lord, may we take it to heart tonight. May we be moved and stirred by it. May we go out, he, go out from here tonight with hearts full of joy in our Savior. With hearts full of joy in our patient Heavenly Father who bears with us daily. And may your spirit fill us with strength, with joy, with a hatred for sin, with a love for all that is holy and good and right. And Lord, may we fight and make war against sin. But above all, Lord, may we together worship you. And even when we find ourselves in those cold places where our hearts feel dead, Lord, may, you, may we respond to that call you give us. And may you enliven our hearts as we engage in that worship. And may our brothers and sisters in Christ, as they engage in it, revive us. That we may encourage one another all the way into the day until we join that grand choir and, 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 and worship of heaven where we lift up your voices in perfection and glory. And we pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, let's respond.